This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Honoré Fanon Jeffers on her debut novel, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. Honoré Fanon Jeffers is a fiction writer, poet and essayist. She is the author of five poetry collections, including The Age of Phyllis, which won the NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work in Poetry, was long listed for a National Book Award, and was a finalist for the Penn Volcker Award for Poetry and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Poetry. She was a contributor to The Fire This Time, the essay collection edited by Jasmine Ward, and has been published in the Kenyan Review, the Iowa Review, and other literary magazines. She was elected into the American Antiquarian Society, whose members include 14 US presidents and is a critic at large for the Kenyan Review. And she currently teaches creative writing and literature at the University of Oklahoma. And today we're going to talk about Honoré's debut novel, which is The Love Songs of W.E. Du Bois. Honoré, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, I'd like you to tell us how you would describe this novel. Well, I would describe this novel as uh, an epic story of a one Black family in central Georgia, Um, but I would also describe it as a microcosm of the story of America and how we came to be in this place. The book is roughly divided into two narratives. So there's a, well, in the main, a first, but it's not all, but in the main, a first person narrative narrated by Ailey, one of the Garfield family of sisters, um, who we're going to talk about in a moment. And then there's a separate narrative of songs, which is a sort of a history of the ancestors of that family, narrated by, I guess, the voice of those ancestors. Um, and I want to talk about, first of all, why you chose to to have those two parallel narratives. Well, originally, the book was just supposed to be about Ailey, Ailey Pearl. And then when I started having sort of, um, I don't want to be too woo-woo here, but um, <laughs> when I started having dreams about uh, the past, and at first I didn't know what it was supposed to be. And I would wake up and I would write long lyrical prose passages. And after about 18 months to two years, I realized these were Ailey's ancestors. uh, And I decided to incorporate their story as sort of a mirror of whatever was happening in Ailey's life to reach back to the past and to have these two sections connect. But that took a while. That took about five years. The novel total took um, 11 and a half years to finish. I was done with the final draft before it was sold. And that was about uh, nine years. And then it took two and a half more years, something like that, to edit. You say you don't want to get woo-woo, but dreams are are very important to the story as well in that both um, Amy's yes. mother, Maybell, and herself, they both yes. have dreams. They both have dreams that feature, very vivid dreams that feature these ancestors, don't they? Yes, they do. And, you know, in the deep South among, I guess we would call them working class folks, 
There's still a real connection to folklore, uh, proverbs, uh, folk medicine, et cetera. And there are a lot of, you know, uh, Black women who will say, I had a dream and such and such, such and such happened. And then two or three weeks later, the dream comes true. So I thought that what I would do is sort of feature what I know of the Deep South. You know, uh, people that were similar in the ways they looked at the world and their worldview, similar to people in my family, folks who have now passed on, who are similar um, in their worldview to uh, the folks that I grew up around when I was, you know, a young girl going to visit my grandmother. And so, yes, dreams are very important. I wanted also for people to look at the way that history presents in so many different ways. It's not just on the pages of a document, you know, on a, a documentary page. It can present in oral tradition. It can present in connections spiritually to the ancestors. I just wanted to give that full range. Tell us something about the Garfield sisters then. Obviously, Ailey is the, the narrator of the story, but her sisters, Coco, Carol, and Lydia as well. Um, Lydia obviously plays a, a very significant part in the narrative, and we're not going to give anything away as to what happens. But <laughs> tell, us, tell us something about who these sisters are. Well, they're very tight. Um, they're three girls and they are uh, the daughters of Mabel Lee Bale, Driscoll Garfield, and her husband, Jeffrey Garfield. But this is very much a women's story. That's why there are not any boys really in the contemporary portion. It's very much a women's story. And because their family is very traditional in terms of Belle does, you know, the hands-on rearing of children and Jeff, who's a doctor, is gone a lot of the time. They are much more closer to Bale's side of the family. And it's very much, a, it's not a matriarchy, but it's a matriline. And so these girls have very strong personalities in different ways. And again, I wanted to show what I remember of growing up in the South, that Black women, even when they, you know, took their husbands' names and the men were considered the head of the family, the women really ran the household. So Jeff, the father of this contemporary Garfield household, as you said, is a doctor. This is a middle-class family. And yes. the book also looks at the sort of anxieties of, of the Black middle classes and the tensions between the girls all spend their summers back in more rural Georgia while well, they live in a in a city, um, but they basically come and spend summers back with their grandparents yes. or the grandmother mm -hmm. in in a in a rural in the the, the fictional town of Chickasetta. Um, tell us something about this exploration of the black middle classes in the book as well. Well, you know, there have been plenty of novels that sort of explore and uh, historical, you know, nonfiction texts that explore the Black middle class. But 
not so much the anxieties Mm -hmm. of the black middle class and overtly uh, not since Jesse Fawcett, whose name, you know, appears several times in the book, have we really um, dealt with the sort of anxieties about the black middle class in America? One of the things that I wanted to highlight is the fact that very few black people no matter what their socioeconomic class, like let's say they're middle class, upper middle class, or even rich, they always have relatives who are not. There are always relatives who are working class or even poor. Many of us, because of the ratcheting up of the carceral state in the United States, many of us either have relatives who have been to prison or we have friends who have been to prison or we have people that we grew up with. And so there's always this sort of, uh, in my book, this sort of anxiety about one false move, one false step, and you could be thrown back into, you know, poverty or the working class. And I think about that very much when I was writing the book, I thought about these books by, you know, 19th century female English writers. When I thought about, you know, I grew up uh, watching Upstairs Downstairs on PBS. And there's always this thing with women in particular, that if you get involved with the wrong man, if you have a baby out of wedlock, any of that, and you could be living in squalor. And so there's that same sort of anxiety in Ailey's family. And Belle is very, very, really, that just drives her. Like she has to succeed. She has to be educated. She has to, you know, when she gets pregnant, you know, she's terrified about what's going to happen. And then she ends up marrying Jeff and her whole life has changed. She had all of these plans. That is very much an anxiety of people um, that I I have encountered, you know, in Black middle class environments. And that we don't just succeed for ourselves or even our immediate nuclear family. We stand in for an entire 30 million, you know, plus community. When we see someone, you know, we hear tale that there has been a mass shooting or, you know, some sort of horrible thing. I remember growing up and my mother would say, oh God, please don't let this be a black man. So there's all of that sort of anxiety. And I want it to be very, very open about that anxiety. I want it to be very, very open. I want it, anybody who was not Black and who was, you know, not American to be like a fly on the wall. And then for Black people in America, I wanted them to recognize themselves. There's another, the book explores another aspect of that class anxiety as well, which while 
is absolutely linked to ideas of class is is you know an arbitrary thing which is skin color which is the darkness of of a character's skin and the the perceived idea the sort of pernicious idea that the you know the lighter your skin is the further you're going to go in life yes and i think that you know people talk about all of the issues in the book and that there's so many issues but that i wasn't shoehorning you know, issues. I didn't have like a list of things that I was trying to put in the book, right? You know, skin, you know, colorism, classism, but it just naturally evolved because I was writing about a black middle-class family that, you know, particularly Jeff's uh, side of the family comes from a very elite community of very light-skinned black people, Every black town, I mean, every, sorry, every town in America that has a black, a substantial a number of black people has this sort of elite group. And um, up until a few years ago, those people tended to be very light-skinned. Um, and that goes all the way back to slavery times where you would have people who were working in the house next to the slave masters, a lot of times they would be related in some way to the master's family, uh, either half siblings or sometimes they were the children of the masters. And then after slavery, when you had a group of Black people who sort of were upwardly mobile, they tended to be very light-skinned. And so I wanted to talk about this, but I also wanted to talk about simply because somebody was light-skinned didn't mean that they were necessarily living a cushy life. Being in a house, you know, the big house, as it were, during slavery times, as a Black female meant that you were in danger of sexual harassment of assault, intimate assault. And so um, these were very real issues. So it wasn't like I was ticking off boxes. It was more like I just wanted to tell the truth. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Honoré Fanon Jeffers and we're talking about her debut novel, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. And Honoré, let's talk about that titular character for a moment. I want to talk about the sort of influence of W.E. Du Bois, both on yourself and very literally on this novel. But I want to do that through 
another character. You said rightly that this is the story. This is a story of women. It's the story of the, the Garfield sisters, their mother, their, you know, their grandmother, etc. Um, but I, I want to talk about another male character in the book, and that's Uncle Root. Everybody which... loves Uncle Root. <laughs> Absolutely. He's a fantastic character. Tell us something about him, and through him we'll get to W.E.B. Du Bois. Well, you know what's really interesting is Uncle Root initially was meant just to be a walk-on character. There are a lot of sort of, you know, walk-ons. People come in, people come out. Um, I was a fan of Tolstoy when I was a child. Uh, So, you know, my first big book was uh, Roots by Alex Haley. And my second big book was Anna Karenina uh, by Leo Tolstoy. So, you know, he was initially Uncle Root was meant to be simply a walk on character. And he told the story about, you know, the time that he met the great W.E.B. Du Bois. But then what happened when I began to look at the way that history or, I, you know, the way that the book was evolving, the novel was evolving. And I looked at how history reverberated and I looked at the themes that were emerging. I didn't even mean, again, to tick this box, but, you know, as I, as I wrote, things were evolving. I went back to that story of Uncle Root and I, you know, about how he had met W.E.B. Du Bois And it's based on, you know, historical possibility because W.E.B. Du Bois worked at Atlanta University. And even after he left, he would come back down south. He would visit historically black colleges and people would have these sightings of him. And so I started thinking about the fact that I had attended and historically Black college, actually two. And I graduated, I transferred from one to another. And I I thought about how in an English class, I had read W.E.B. Du Bois. Friends of mine who were in history classes had read W.E.B. Du Bois. People who were social work majors had read W.E.B. Du Bois. People who were in political science classes and on and on. There was no way that you could, he was like the rock of Gibraltar. You could not go around him or over him. He was so important to um, intellectual history in Black community. And so I, I guess it was round about year three or four, I wish I had kept diaries during this time, that I began to go back and read him and saw that for every historical moment in Black America, W.E.B. Du Bois had a good word. He had a word. And then strangely, I began to see that for every moment in my characters' lives, W.E.B. Du Bois had a word. And that's when the structure of the novel um, started coming together. And I started thinking about using his words as a guidepost to move from place to place to place in the book. And even though 
you know, people are uh, sometimes a little confused. You know, this is a woman's book. This is a black woman's book. I wrote this book for black women, but his name is on the book. One of the things about W.E.B. Du Bois was he was one of the first black feminists. He didn't call himself that, but publicly, we won't talk about his private life, but publicly, <laughs> He was very supportive of the rights of women and Black women in particular. And so I started thinking about that. And, you know, you, you come to a point when you write any book, you know, this is my first novel, but, you know, of course I have five books of poetry where you're almost molding things like clay, how you... You know, when you first start writing, you don't want to, to mix my metaphors, wrestle the book to the ground and kick the bejesus out of it, right? But as you begin to write more and more, and you're about maybe halfway through, three quarters of the way through, you do start molding the book into what is, you know, what's the image that you want to project? And that's how Dr. Du Bois came to be the book, but there were people who were like, this is a stupid title. This is a pretentious <laughs> title. And I know that, I mean, when you name a book, I was just in a reading, um, my first in-person event in three years in Washington, D.C. And I read just a little bit from the book. And afterward, as I was milling about, this Black man came up to me and he said, when you title a book, with W.E.B. Du Bois's name in it, and it's a novel, you're going to have to come with it. I remember he said that. And I said, and I'm typically not, you know, I, I typically tend to be kind of modest when people, uh, it's my Black Southern background. But I said, I believe I did. I believe I came with it. And we both, you know, sort of laughed about that. I would normally ask what other writers were an influence on yourself in writing this novel, but I want to do that in a slightly different way. And I want to talk about, okay. and I'm sure they're going to be the same, but we'll talk about what other writers, apart from Du Bois, would be an influence on Ailey's journey as a scholar and a Black feminist. Uh, okay. What other writers would be an influence? Well... Um, the Color Purple is one of Ailey's favorite books by Alice Walker. The Color Purple by Alice Walker is one of Ailey's favorite books, and it's Lydia's favorite book. Definitely, uh, when we're talking about scholarly books, we would be talking about Kimberly Crenshaw. Her name doesn't come up, but there is a reference to intersectionality in one of the chapters, Ailey chapters. And Kimberly Crenshaw coined that term. I would be looking at someone like Angela Davis. Um, I would look at someone like Belle Hooks. Hardcore historical um, scholars would be, aside from W.E.B. Du Bois, John Blassengame. So there would be people who would be studying the history of Black folks. 
I would think even though his name does not appear in the book, when we're looking at a timeline, Henry Louis Gates would be someone that Ailey would have read. And then his name does appear in the uh, book, David Levering Lewis, who wrote the two-volume biography of W.E.B. Du Bois. So those would be some of the scholars that would have a great influence on Ailey. You mentioned already that the book took 11 years in total to write. And it's a debut novel, but it's a big, honking, 800-page <laughs> debut novel it's honking how... okay <laughs> you mentioned you loved those huge 19th century sagas like sort of war of peace type novels and indeed mm-hmm. this book has you know it has the family tree multiple family trees cast of characters at the beginning of the book yes. and everything and I want to talk about how you held it together fundamentally how this book came together over those years well you know I was writing stories set in Chickasetta years ago. So when I first started writing fiction, I had created this fictitious town, which is based on Eatonton, Georgia, uh, which is where Alice Walker is from. Um, My mother taught Alice Walker uh, when Miss Alice was in junior high school. So it's a very small town. Some people even tried to look up Chickasetta on the map. I did they myself. <laughs> they contacted me and they said, where is Chickasetta? I said, Chickasetta doesn't exist, but Putnam County does. So where, whereabouts that, in Georgia, located actually in, in Georgia, Eatonton, whereabouts? It's in, in central, it's in central <laughs> Georgia. It's in a, a county called Putnam. Mm-hmm. Putnam was carved, Putnam County was carved. It's named after, I believe a British man named Putnam, if I'm not mistaken. But Putnam was actually, Putnam County was carved out of Baldwin County in the aftermath of the Georgia land lottery. And the Georgia land lottery was when they um, gave land to, they, you know, there was a lottery and those people whose names were plucked out had to be white men over the age of 21, legitimate white legitimately born okay so you had to be legitimately born um you could not be born out of wedlock or um white women who were widows and then what they did was stole the land from native americans to give to white people so i knew just a bit about Chickasetta. And when I began writing short stories, uh, or sorry, Bessie, even I am, you know, pretending it's a real town. I knew just a bit about Putnam County. Uh, And so when I began writing stories, they were set in this area. Uh, Initially, the town was called Cusetta, but then I found out there was an actual town called Cusetta. I didn't want to get sued. And I also wanted to make up a history. I didn't want to have to be dependent. I knew that the actual history was going to be like the spine of everything that I did, but I I wanted to put the flesh on, on, you know, on the spine, on the bones. So I started writing these short stories. And then, you know, maybe 10 years later, I began thinking about writing a novel. And the novel that was 
acquired by Harper Books was only 450 pages long. And then my editor, the great Aaron Wicks, said, I want you to write a little bit more. So, you know, she had other other writers that she was working with. So she said, well, listen, you know, take a couple, three months, you know, write as much as you can so that we can really flesh this out, really have texture, et cetera. And so I was concerned, you know, I said, well, Aaron, this book is already really long, you know, 450 pages. And she said, oh, we'll, we'll just cut it. We'll cut whatever, you know, whatever we don't need. Don't even worry about it. So I went and I I wrote, you know, I wrote about hmm, 150 new pages in about two to three months. Then I had some stuff on the cloud, you know, that I had written, you know, in, in some years past. And so I started putting everything together. And then when I came back, I had 700 pages and I was, I was just like, okay, how are we going to do this? And I was so terrified that this was just too much. I actually was looking at the book to see what we could cut. And one of the sections was the Lydia section. And people tend to get very horrified when they think about, (laughs) they're like, what in the world? What are you thinking? What were were you, you know, were you, were you high, you know, but, but I was just terrified, you know, this is my first book. You know, and so the confidence that I have now that comes, you know, six months after the book was published, you know, seven or so months after Miss Oprah chose the book for her book club. But I had never done this before. Um, So I didn't have the confidence, but my editor had the confidence and she just kept saying, this is a magisterial epic. (laughs) <laughs> she just she just kept saying that it's a magisterial epic. So when I brought, you know, the I guess it was 700 or so pages to her and I didn't hear back from her. And I was just like, oh, my God, she's just going to tell me I'm horrible. I'm a hack. They're going to want their money back from Harper. You know, I just started spiraling, you know. And so finally, you know, I reached out to her. And I texted her and I said, Aaron, I I haven't heard from you and I'm really scared. And, you know, just punch me in the throat. Just tell me, is it really bad? And she said, oh, no, this is great. And as a matter of fact, I want you to write more. And I was like, what? You know, nobody's going to buy this book. She said, everybody's going to buy this book. To finish it off, can I get you to, to read it just a, just a little bit of those 800 pages? This is from the very first page of the book. And this is from the very first song. We are the earth, the land, the tongue that speaks and trips on the names of the dead as it dares to tell these stories of a woman's line, her people and her dirt, her trees, her water. We knew this woman before she became a woman. We knew her before she was born. We sang to her in her mother's womb. We sang then and we sing now. We called this woman back through the years to our early place, to our bright shoots rising with the seasons. We know her mingled people, 
how they started off as sacred hermed verses. And now we go back through the centuries to the beginning of her line to a village called the place in the middle of the tall trees. And we start with a boy, the child who will change everything on our land. Wait, we know you have questions such as if we tell the story of a woman's line, why would we begin with a boy? And to your wonder, we counter, we could have begun with a bird's call or with a stalk of corn, with a cone from a tree or a tendril of green. All these things lead back to this woman's line, whether we mention them or not. Yet since our story does not follow a straight path, we travel to places here and across the water. We must keep to the guidance of time. To the one who first walked past a tall grass-covered mound in a particular place in the woods. And we have questions as well, for despite our authority, we cannot know everything. And so we ask, if a child cannot remember his mother's face, does he still taste her milk? Does he remember the waters inside her? Can you answer those questions? No, and neither can we. Yet we remind you that many children commence within women. And thus, this is why it is completely fine that we begin with a boy. And so we proceed. So I've been talking to Honoré Fanon Jeffers. We've been talking about her debut novel, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. Honoré, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much. I, I just enjoyed this. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. <laughs>